Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, posting July 17, 2015, we talk with Israeli nuclear scientist David Andelman about kicking the oil addiction, fact and fiction, the article he co-authored for the special Climates Cliff WPJ 2015 summer issue. We'll also point out other top stories in the new summer issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Report's news service. After two years of negotiations, the United States, together with our international partners, has achieved something that decades of animosity has not. A comprehensive, long-term deal with Iran that will prevent it from obtaining a nuclear weapon. And with that, Barack Obama detailed one of the biggest foreign policy achievements of his presidency, a goal he's been working on from day one. The details are many, and they are complicated. In essence, Iran's path to a nuclear bomb are blocked, but only for 15 years. Tehran must reduce its current stockpile of lower enriched uranium by 98 percent and and its capacity to develop weapons-grade plutonium. International inspectors can request access to any site, but apparently not immediate access. When and if Iran complies with these measures, economic sanctions would be lifted, an arms embargo could be lifted in five years, and sanctions concerning ballistic missiles in eight years. Obama emphasizes that the deal is not based on trust, but on a stiff inspections and verification regime. Even so, there's hardline opposition here in Washington, where a skeptical Republican-led Congress has 60 days to review the deal. Many lawmakers have wasted no time in poking holes in it. Obama says he'll veto any effort to derail the agreement. American allies in the Middle East seem skeptical, notably Israel, where Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu calls the deal, quote, a historic mistake. For now, though, it's simply historic, an opening of sorts to a longtime enemy. All this will play out for years to come. On to Greece now, where lawmakers are debating a bailout of nearly $100 billion to prop up its collapsing economy. The Greek fiscal crisis now in its fifth year appears worse than ever, and harsh conditions imposed by foreign creditors like the European Central Bank and International Monetary Fund have left Athens with little maneuvering room. From the White House standpoint, the latest Greek bailout offer is seen as, quote, a credible step, spokesman Josh Ernest adding that hopefully it'll help stabilize Greece and put it on the path to economic growth. The broader concern for the White House is that further Greek instability could harm the broader European economy. It's worth noting that other countries on Europe's southern tier, Italy, Spain, and Portugal among them, have similar fiscal worries. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. This is a confluence of a natural disaster and a man-made disaster. And the cloud of radioactivity, the uncertainty of what will happen with it, is the cloud that hangs over the people of Japan, and I think right now hangs over the world. It certainly caused me to reconsider uh, the projects of uh, building civil nuclear 
power plants. The 2011 earthquake and tsunami that triggered a nuclear plant disaster in Fukushima, Japan, also prompted Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to halt plans for his nation's first atomic power plant in the Negev Desert, as he explained on CNN. The concurrent discovery of natural gas offshore also made the turn away from nuclear less a threat to Israel's overall energy needs, along with notable progress in developing renewable sources such as solar and wind. But a strong argument for the world to continue at least a partial transitional role for nuclear power comes ironically from Israel to the Climate's Cliff section of World Policy Journal's new summer 2015 issue. Headlined, Kicking the Oil Addiction, Fact and Fiction, it was written by two professors at Tel Aviv University's School of Physics and Astronomy, David Andelman, not the similarly named WPJ editor and publisher, and Guy Deutscher. I spoke about it recently with Professor Andelman for this podcast. David Andelman, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you. I'm very happy to join in. Uh, your article proceeds from the problem of carbon dioxide emissions already in our atmosphere and accelerating now more than ever. Uh, remind us where we stand. Okay, so uh, if we look a little bit on the history and even more than uh, the, the recent history, what happened in the recent 100 years, and in particular after the Second World War, is that the uh, level of CO2, carbon dioxide, in the atmosphere doubled, and we are really uh, getting to levels that will be even triple the level that were the equilibrium level of CO2 in the atmosphere for the last one million years. This is very alarming as it may have a devastating effect on the climate and on global warming and other destabilizing effects on the atmosphere. A key element in your World Policy Journal article is the case study of Germany, where about half the nuclear plants have been closed since 2011 and the rest uh, to be phased out by 2022. You see that as a bad model. So let's recapitulate. How much of its electricity now comes from renewable sources? How does that compare with other countries trying for greener energy? So Germany indeed is, is a very interesting in, and in some sense a paradoxical uh, example. Uh, Germany did a big effort uh, in recent years and about 30% of its electricity comes now from renewable sources. Mainly in Germany we are talking about wind turbine at the shore of the North Sea and solar panels. Uh, the paradox here is that Germany is, uh, uh, although it's increased the uh, production of electricity from nuclear, it also increased the production of electricity from coal, and of course coal is one of the worst uh, energy sources that emits CO2 into the atmosphere. So Let this me is stop a case. You. Actually, you, you said Germany increased its electricity from nuclear, but it's, it seems to be trying to decrease its, uh, the yeah. amount it relies on nuclear by closing these plants down. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, I mixed up. I mixed up. Germany is phasing out its uh, nuclear plants. Uh, it used to get about 25% of its electricity from nuclear plants. It phased already half of them, and in the next seven or so years, it will close all of them. And this source of this source of energy is now uh, replaced by by renewables. On the other hand, Germany is increasing its consumption of coal, coal used for producing electricity. And I gather that uh, to the degree it's buying electricity from neighboring countries, of course, they are continuing to use fossil fuels and put them into the atmosphere. That's, that's another uh, paradox. Uh, so on one hand, you have a very advanced country that is uh, going into this direction of using renewable, uh, trying to use less uh, fossil fuels, at least directly, and not use nuclear energy because of the uh, potential risk that one has in nuclear energy. On the other hand, it is buying electricity from neighboring countries like uh, the Czech Republic and Poland where the electricity is produced by low-grade and quite polluting uh, coal. And it's also buying electricity from France where most of the electricity is produced by nuclear. So the point here is that although uh, Germany is doing uh, a change in its own energy uh, policy, this is not viable even on the pan-European scale. It's not possible that one country will go one way while it's uh, forcing or uh, it's requiring the other country to, to do the other way, to produce electricity more by, with nuclear or with coal. And let's talk about some of the inherent problems with the production of uh, electrical power from renewable sources. Uh, talk about the current state of power transmission that limits significantly more reliance on renewable sources. Yes. So this is also something that people don't pay so much attention because the renewable energies, they are very nice if one is doing them on a small scale, on a household scale, on a small village scale. But when you try to replace most of the energy, let's say most of the electricity production in a country from renewable, you have very big problems that actually are to date unsolvable. The two big problems are transmission, of energy, of electricity over distances that uh, goes hundreds of miles. For example, in Germany, the electricity is produced at the, in the north by wind turbine uh, at the shore of the North Sea, while it has to be brought to the industrial south about 500 miles away. Transmitting uh, electricity over such big distances uh, pose quite large technological problem and is extremely costly. The other problem that is related to renewable sources such as solar and wind is the fact that they are intermittent. 
uh, wind can be produced only when there is wind or in area where there is wind, for example, like in Germany at, at the North Sea. And solar, of course, can be produced only when there is enough sunshine. And uh, electricity is not uh, consume only in uh, periods where there is sun or when there is wind. Electricity has to be supplied in a constant rate. And this means that in some sense uh, we need to find ways to store the energy, to use, to, to produce it in periods where it can be produced and to uh, consume it throughout the, 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 the day, throughout the year. Storing of energy, again, is possible on a small scale, on a household scale, or even on a scale of a, of a town, but it's a huge problem on a scale of a country and certainly on the scale of the entire world. Are some uh, companies making huge strides in high-power, high-capacity batteries and, and other uh, electrochemical means of storing power? Yes. So, uh, yeah, that, that's a very, very good uh, point. And actually, there was a, a, a beautiful example for innovation in, in, in this area very recently. So, as I said, it's very hard to store energy on, on a very large scale. This, this is extremely difficult. There are some isolated examples, for example, in Switzerland, in some places, uh, one pumps water to uh, elevated reservoir uh, when there is surplus of electricity using uh, electrical pumps. And then this water is used uh, when it's flown downhill to generate, again, electricity by uh, turning some, some turbine during a period of, of uh, high demand. Th this is possible, but it's, it's local. It's, let's say, supply electricity to, to a small town, but even in Switzerland, it, it's not a, a solution which holds for, for the whole nation. What happened recently, and this is a, a very nice and innovative idea, is to try to store electricity on a distributive uh, fashion, namely to store electricity on the level of the consumer, on the household level or on the factory level. And very recently, a few weeks ago, uh, about two months ago, Tesla Motor Company, which produces uh, electric, this uh, uh, very fancy and actually expensive electric car that can uh, really drive on, on electrical power for about, I think, 300 between charges. So they, they have they had already accumulated a, a rather large knowledge about Pro, uh, production of, of uh, batteries, and they came out recently with an idea that they are selling batteries for the household use, batteries of 10 kilowatt hours. This is a, a unit of energy, and it means that it's basically enough for a modest household consumption per day. So the idea is that such batteries will be uh, used in each household. They will be either replenished by 
renewables, for example, a solar panel that will charge them during period, of course, where uh, there is enough sun. And then the, the battery will supply in a constant fashion the energy uh, needs for a household without really relying on the network. The other alternative where there is not enough renewables is to use the electricity network to charge the battery during off-peak hours where production and cost is low and to use them during uh, peak consumption when it's difficult for the public utility company and expensive to supply the entire cost. A lot of the electricity uh, costs come from the fact that the power company has to uh, keep enough reserve in production of electricity to supply the, the demand during peak hours. If everyone will have such a distributive energy storage at home, it will mean that the electricity company can rely on a more constant production, which will lower the cost very much. And of course, as I said, part of this electricity also can be produced by renewables and stored at the consumer level and used by him later when there is a need. So in, indeed, we're seeing uh, almost in, in the energy world the way we've seen the breakup of, of employment, uh, of other big systems, of people being more independent, uh, relying on themselves, easing uh, the larger national demand. I'm recently back from Greece, where solar power is used to heat household water directly in tanks on the roof, avoiding the need to generate electricity, at least for that purpose. Uh, does that kind of simpler technology hold out hope for some locations, especially in the perhaps the developing world. Yeah, I, I fully agree. Myself, I, I live in Israel, and like in Greece, these are countries where there is a lot of sun. So we have the same solution as in Greece. It's a very cheap solution of heating water by having some panel. These are not uh, the semiconductor panels, the photovoltaic panels. These are very simple panel painted in black and heating some water that that uh, uh, are in, in some water pipes and, and uh, it actually can reduce quite a bit, maybe in a factor of two or even more, the uh, consumption of, of electricity for heating water for households. It has of its limitation. It's a low-tech technique, very cheap. The the limitation is both that it's again it's rely on the sun. It doesn't guarantee hot water throughout the year. In in the winter, for example, uh, one has to again to rely on on electricity. Uh, the other problem is that it's a solution for dwellers that are not too high, simply because of the ratio between the roof surface and the number of apartments in, in, in a residential house. If uh, it, there are more than seven to ten floors, it's not economical to have this source. Uh, but such low-tech solution, especially for developing countries where, for example, people cannot afford to, to pay $25,000 to put 
photovoltaic uh, panels on 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 their uh, house like uh, people in Germany or in the United States can do in such country we need to think of other solutions not only of this uh, uh, fancy uh, solution that cost a lot of of, uh, of money and are possible only in limited number of, of countries and for limited uh, uh, fraction of, of, the, of society. Don't you say that for most of the world, nuclear power is essential until renewable technology evolves? And you note that even the rare Fukushima and Chernobyl-type disasters don't have the same pernicious effect globally as emissions from fossil fuels. Talk about that. Okay, so I'm. Let's say that I'm. I'm. I'm a little bit careful, uh, and I'm not really advocating that uh, the nuclear uh, power plant should now be a global solution. Uh, nuclear energy, of course, has has many problems, uh, both in terms of the risk of accident, in terms of the the nuclear waste and, and other other problems, uh, security, safety. Uh, what I what I mainly maintain is that in developed countries like Western Europe, Japan, uh, United States, and maybe in, in other countries like China and India, if the power plants already exist and they produce a large fraction of electricity in France it can I, I believe it goes over 70% of the electricity just to close them and by closing them one is actually forced to burn more coal and to emit more CO2 into the atmosphere has really a much more devastating effect the fear of nuclear accident, certainly Chernobyl and maybe also Fukushima, uh, these rare events are, of course, awful, and they are awful to the local population that, they, that lived in, in, in that area. However, emitting such huge amount of, of CO2, burning so much of the fossil fuel, the fossil fuel that accumulated during hundreds of millions of years with photosynthetic processes. It took hundreds of millions of years for the CO2 level in the atmosphere to stabilize. And until the Industrial Revolution, the level was stable for about the, the last million years. Now, what we as society are doing, we are burning all these reserves, and we are doubling and even tripling the concentration of CO2 and other greenhouse uh, gases in the atmosphere, not in the same time scale of hundreds of millions of years, but in a, in a very, very short time scale of 100 to two, 200 years. And this is something that has no precedent in the, uh, the uh, history of, of the globe. And as such, it, it may have a much more devastating effect. It's not an effect that we are going to see tomorrow or maybe not even in the next 20 or 40 years, but it's, it's an effect that we are going to uh, 
see in in the next in in the end of the century or maybe even later and the big problem about that is that once a co2 molecule is released into the atmosphere it's extremely difficult on a global scale to 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 catch it back as i said i mean in natural processes it took hundreds of millions of years to catch it back consume a lot of energy it's exactly the same energy that we don't have to leave it there means that we are creating for the next generation a huge environmental problem the the globe will not explode or will not cease to exist the globe will be here even with a high and elevated level of co2 in the prehistoric time there were high level but we as a modern society will not be able to exist in the same way that we are uh, existing today and this is a, the big fear and in my opinion much bigger that in, in any of this rare nuclear accident that were awful but their scale was local not global on on the entire globe level of course some critics of nuclear power point out that uh, the total nuclear power cycle also generates emissions from fossil fuels used in uranium mining milling enrichment uh, nuclear fuel fabrication radioactive waste transportation and storage uh, how do you reply to that so uh, I think that you make here a very important point. If, if there is anything that I, as a physicist, as a scientist, can, can say and, and, and uh, enlighten the general public, it's exactly this point. The point is, of course, what you are saying is absolutely correct, and it, but it's correct for any source of energy. So. It's correct for nuclear energy, it's correct for solar energy, for wind, for fossil fuel. Any type of energy costs energy to produce it. There are no free lunches on the global energy market. So, for example, people talk a lot about solar energy produced from semiconductor uh, photovoltaic panel, usually made from silicon or other uh, semiconductor materials. Something that not many people know is that beside the, the question of cost, cost is of course an, an artificial uh, ingredient that has to do with, with economy, but if I, we just look on, on the energy balance, to produce a photovoltaic panel requires energy just as it requires energy to, to, to maintain a, a nuclear plant or nuclear energy. It takes five years for the balance to, to, to be achieved, namely the, five, the first five years in the photovoltaic solar panel, the energy that is produced by the cell is simply off balancing the energy that was needed to construct the cell. And only after the first five years, if we talk about a gain in energy, only after the first five years there is a true and uh, uh, honest uh, gain in energy. The only source of energy that is free for us on Earth, uh, in some sense, is the sun. 
the sun is there, it's radiating, we are harvesting the sun, the sun energy directly and in many, many indirect ways. And, and this is the only free source, but even this source, to, to use it, especially if we talk about a scalable use on the entire global scale, it costs also energy. And this is something that uh, is very important to, to state, and there is a lot of misinformation about that. Uh, any type of, of energy, especially those that has to be produced artificially, will cost also a lot of energy to produce them. But as the, uh, as the demand and the production increases, uh, one imagines that the price of, of creating the, the technology, the mechanisms, will come down, and it might change the balance. It might not take five years. It might take three, or it might take two. There might be cheaper production. Is, uh, I think that the, 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 the fans of renewable energy are hoping that more assets would be put into helping uh, develop that kind of technology uh, to change the balance to, to, to deal with the problem of, of it taking energy to make energy. Uh, again, this is a, 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 a very good remark, and I fully agree with that. Uh, so as, as, I, as I tried to emphasize before, one has to separate between cost in terms of, of money which is in some sense artificial because we know that the price of any any product depends a lot on, on on production on on needs and and demands and supply and also what i try to emphasize the the energy balance but of course as you mentioned even the energy balance by using uh, new technology, innovative technology, using new materials, of course that the cost in terms of energy will go down. And I'm certainly not against uh, renewable sources. I'm very much for them. But one has to really have a clear and honest view on, on those sources. Right now, 10% of the and the electricity production in developed world, more or less, is co coming from renewables. We use, still we use 80%. Most of the uh, energy that we consume come from fossil fuels. To offset this balance between 80% from fossil fuels and, I said before, 10%, I meant, in developed countries, for the entire globe, we talk about 5% of energy that comes from renewables. So to offset this balance between 80% and 5%, it's a factor, it's a big factor be between them of 40. We really need new technology, we need innovation, and uh, we, of course, meanwhile, need other solutions. And what I maintain is that for the short to medium range, nuclear energy is one of those uh, solutions. The other solution will be to, to consume energy in different ways, not to be so wasteful in energy consumption. And this is clear, a clear statement for the developing country because the United States and Europe consume huge amount of energy and also uh, waste 
huge amounts of energy. And actually, another thing that not many people know is that most of the energy consumed per capita, not per country, but per capita, most of the energy consumed in developed countries, in OECD countries, in the United States, Europe, Japan, and so on, come from the public sector, not from the private sector. Only about 10% of the energy, including the private uh, car and heating the water and uh, electricity, utilities, and so on, 10% of the, the energy is consumed by the private sector. The other is 90% uh, uh, or so is consumed by the commercial sector, the in industrial sector, the public transportation, and so on. So the message here is that any saving of energy is not going to come from the consumer itself. It's really going to come from a restructuring of society and using energy in a wiser and less wasteful way on a, on, a, on a large scale, on the scale of the country. Professor Adelman, thank you very much. Thank you so much. David Adelman and Guy Deutscher, fellow professors at Tel Aviv University's School of Physics and Astronomy, wrote the article Kicking the Oil Addiction, Fact and Fiction for the Climate's Cliff World Policy Journal Summer 2015 issue. Also featured in the summer 2015 issue of World Policy Journal, you'll find more on developing solar and wind power, stories about threats to the environment from Nicaragua to the Arctic, and a conversation with Nobel Prize winner Hiro Amano about the cool light of LEDs that he helped develop and their larger potential impact on energy, environment, and society. Plus, tune in to next week's podcast as we talk again with Peter Atwater, an expert on the psychology of financial, political, and social decision-making, about the highly divisive Greek debt deal, its likely impact on Greece and on other nations of the Eurozone and European Union. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Adelman, not the scientist whose name is the same, managing editor Jaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>